Revelation chapter 13 tonight. We have the great privilege and joy of talking about the false prophet this evening. And so let's pray and we'll jump into scripture. Father, thank you so much for your word. And God, we pray that we would, that we would hunger for your truth. God, that we would build our lives upon your truth. Uh, we pray, God, that there would be uh, just a great level of discernment within our lives, that we would be like the church, the believers in Berea, that uh, searched daily to discern whether or not the words of the Apostle Paul were even true. They searched the scriptures, and I pray that you would help us to be that discerning. God, um, not only knowing your truth, but living it and applying it to our lives and leading others towards it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen, I want to remind you that Matthew chapter 24, we're not there tonight, I'm not going to turn you there tonight, but Matthew chapter 24 is called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus in that chapter gives some description as to what this last seven year period of time is going to be like. Uh, and, and I do believe it's um, a description of the full seven year period of time, but he also highlights uh, the last three and a half years, beginning with the abomination of desolation. And his, that, that chapter really is, everything that he says there in that discourse is a response to questions that the disciples asked him. And oftentimes, what gets missed in the study of that chapter uh, are the very first words that he says before he says anything else. He says this, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. And then he begins, and then he begins to describe that period of time. Um, but I, listen, I think that those words are not only important for that period of time, and in fact, as we study tonight, we're going to really discover why that exhortation was so important for those that would be living during the seven-year period of tribulation. But I also believe that those words are important for us today. Um, and let me, just, well, let me just flip it around a little bit, all right? He says, take heed that no one deceives you. Uh, be on your guard that no one misleads you, if you have the ESV um, or I think the NASV. Uh, and in saying that, what he is saying is, you know, there is truth. Truth is not up for grabs. I mean, if truth was up for grabs, and he wouldn't have to say, make sure you're not misled, because what would... What would misleading mean if there was no such thing as truth? But because there is truth, because there is a prescribed way that God has declared and set forth, it is possible to be deceived so that you are turned away from that path of truth that's laid out, of course, that we see beginning in Genesis, but really fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, and Jesus, looking forward, not in the sense of uh, joy and anticipation, but looking forward in the sense of uh, chronology to this period of time, he says, take heed that no one deceives you, because during that era, there will be many people who will declare themselves to be Messiah. There will be many false prophets. There will be many false teachers. Now listen, this wasn't the first time that they heard him say these words, because uh, on the Sermon of the Mount... He expresses the same sentiment, and I, I'm, I'm saying this to you tonight just so you understand that the issue of us being on our toes spiritually, having a spiritual edge, being people who are discerning, isn't just for uh, a group of Christians down the road during the tribulation, it is for us now. And, and so he says in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's wrapping things up, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So, so he says to his disciples, and look, I mean, I think we would all agree that the Sermon on the Mount is the Magna Carta of discipleship. That, that if you want to know what real discipleship is, read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and you'll have an understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in that, one of the exhortations is, hey, hey, listen, you have to have a spiritual edge. You have to be careful. You have to be on your toes. You have to beware, be wary of. 
Um, and why do you have to be on your toes? Because isn't it just obvious when there's a false prophet? Well, not according to Jesus, because he says, they will come in sheep's clothing, right? On the outward, uh, on the outside, on the outward, they look like maybe disciples, or maybe they look like Christians, or maybe they look like Christian leaders. But on the inside, they're not just wolves, they're ravenous wolves. They are hungry for souls. They don't have your best interest in mind. They don't care about you and making your life better. They have come to steal, rob, and destroy. They want to tear you down, not build you up. And Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. In other words, you have to be discerning. You have to be discerning. Now, I don't mean to get off on a tangent here, but sometimes we just apply that generally to, to all people. Well, you'll know them by their fruits as if, you know, we're fruit inspectors in everybody's lives. Um, and if that's you, God help you, all right? That's all, that's all I can say because you're not a blessing to the body of Christ. You know, you, and you know what I'm talking about, those people who are like judging every believer uh, and, and making sure they're, the other person's life lines up to their own personal convictions. He is not talking about that. He is talking about false prophets, right? We ought to be observing those who say that they're proclaiming the truth, but their lifestyle uh, and really fundamentally their message declares something totally different because in the end time, this is what's going to happen. Not everyone, he goes on to say just a couple verses later, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, and he's really connecting this to, to the false prophet, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we spoken on your behalf? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? Listen, just because someone does something in the name of Jesus does not mean that they are sent by Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're a messenger of Jesus. There are a lot of people who have hijacked the name of Jesus for their own personal interests. And so don't be naive, church. This is what I think he is saying. Don't be naive. Just because someone, you know, points to the heavens after they score a touchdown. No, I, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you, we just, we just, sometimes we're so naive, we're like, oh, look, they said God, they're a believer. Well, no, not necessarily, because what God are they talking about? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, so, as we start this study tonight, um, I, I do just want to remind you that Spiritual leaders are intended to help the body of Christ understand what is true and what is false and to be able to distinguish between those two things. But in addition to that, it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility. Someone once said this, false prophets represent the greatest threat to Christianity. And I, I think that that's true and I think the devil knows that if he, he can just get in with a little bit of doctrinal leaven, if he can just get in with a little bit of doctrinal leaven, that leaven can, it can influence the whole lump. And, you know, sometimes we're like, well, I don't really want to put the time into studying the Bible. Isn't there a website, right? Isn't there a web website that can just tell me? And so for some of us, it's like we just rely on discernment websites. And, and I, I, would, I would say to you, be careful of discernment websites because oftentimes they they generate judgmentalism and pride, not real discernment, truth, and love. Oftentimes, they're not really focused on the essentials. They're focused on the non-essentials. There really is, all I'm saying to you is there really is no substitute for you and the personal study, your personal study and engagement in the Word of God. What, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. What we're going to see here uh, in Revelation chapter 13 and then, and then all the way into chapter 17 and chapter 18, I'm not necessarily including this, what's between uh, those chapters, but what we're going to see is the culmination of all false religions beginning at Babel. So remember when we were in, early on in the book of Genesis, we got to Genesis chapter 11 um, and we, we 
talked about how all false religions ultimately have their starting point. They all started in Babel. Um, and, you know, there, from that point on, there have been all sorts of false religions that have been birthed from Babel. And, of course, behind those false religions and false ideologies, let me just say anything that turns people away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I say it like that just so we know who we're talking about, any idea or ideology or philosophy or religion that diverts people from the God of the Bible is a false religion and ultimately the adversary, the devil, is behind it. We see in these end times the culmination of all false religions uh, ultimately coming together. And so tonight we're going to discover four things uh, that are true about the false prophet uh, in the tribulation period. Uh, and then in addition to that, we are going to discover four things that are true in a more minor sense of all false prophets or false teachers. So tonight is not only going to educate you a little bit about this uh, other individual that will be a key figure during the tribulation period, uh, but tonight will also help you be equipped to be able to discern false teachers and false prophets today. The Bible says in verse 11, then I saw another beast, the Greek word is therion there, so we're talking about a wild, a wild beast. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, right? Similar to what Jesus said back, back in Matthew chapter 7, uh, they come to you in sheep's clothing. So, so there's this outward perspective of innocence. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So the first thing that we learn about the false prophet, uh, and don't forget that Satan is going to have his unholy counterfeit trinity during the tribulation period. So we worship the true trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Satan is going to create a counterfeit trinity that is comprised of himself, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. Or, you know, in accurate order, uh, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Uh, this individual, this false prophet, we see, is going to be subtle and dangerous. Like I said, he's going to have the appearance of innocence. He is going to be disarming. You know, there's going to be a gentleness. There's going to be a passivity. There's going to be a capacity, a religious capacity to bring peace to difficult circumstances and situ situations. And so in all of that, listen, what happens when you see an individual like that? Well, it's disarming. Right? I mean, you, it puts your guard down. You feel at ease, which for sure is one way that the adversary is able to deceive people. On the outside, it seems like everything is good, that this is, in fact, a, a leader that can be followed uh, because of the appearance of innocence. And yet on the inside, uh, the scripture says that he has the voice of a dragon, or he spoke like a dragon. So in other words, remember, the dragon in Revelation chapter 12 is Satan. So he speaks like the devil. I think it's, um, I think it's a, a good question to ask as we look at the scripture, how is it that the devil speaks? Uh, probably not a question you wake up every day asking yourself, but one for sure that you need to consider. This individual is a political Authority. He's a religious authority. He has the voice of a dragon. He speaks like the devil. Well, how does the devil speak? Let me just share with you what the scripture says. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan is the father of lies. Those were the words of Jesus. So one way we know for sure that the adversary speaks is that he lies. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was encouraging the church at Corinth uh, to live in a condition of forgiveness. And in all of that, he talks about the original deception and how Satan is always there discouraging us to be forgiving. In fact, that's where the Apostle Paul says, listen, we're not unaware of the wiles of the adversary. We're not unaware of his strategies. We know how he operates. It's not like he has a bunch of different tools in the toolbox. He just seems to use these same tools over and over again effectively. He lies to people, number one, John chapter 8, verse 44. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says he discourages us uh, in being forgiving towards others. 
The, the, the devil is the one always there encouraging you to hold the grudge. He is the one always there encouraging you to, to foster the fruit of bitterness. He is the one who is always there um, reminding you of what those people did and how they victimized you and how uh, they hurt you and how you have every right to hold these things against them. That is always the adversary. Genesis chapter 3 uh, and Matthew chapter 4 teach us that he, this is how he speaks, he twists the word of God. He is always perverting God's word. And he is always lying about the Lord. I mean, this, this really obviously is the uh, initial insight that we have because Genesis chapter 3 is where we're introduced to the serpent of old. And right off the bat, right out of the gate, what, he, what is he doing? He is twisting God's word, right? This is what he said to Eve. Has God surely said? And then he perverts the character of God and gives the impression that somehow God was holding out on Adam and Eve. And of course, all of that was deception, but he does the same thing today. Revelation chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 3 say that he accuses Christians. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who stands against fellow brothers and sisters. And remember, we overcome him by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, but, but the adversary uh, is never going to stop bringing false accusations against the people of God, which is, by the way, just a good reminder for us not to be a part of his game. Revelation chapter 20 says he deceives the nations. Revelation chapter 2, as Jesus is speaking to one of the churches, reminds that church that he is behind false doctrine. 1 John chapter 4 says he is the one who denies the incarnation, right? And so, so it does seem that the adversary is always leveraging words to de deceive people, to turn them away from the way of God. And I think it's important for us to remember that, that we, we ourselves can be susceptible to deception, no matter how much you know about the Bible. Now, today you might be thinking, and, you know, this is your process. Well, pastor, I've been saved for 20 years. It's impossible for me to be deceived. Really? Really? Because I, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I read to you the very first example of the way the devil speaks was a statement that Jesus made to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He said, you know what? You're just like your daddy. Okay, this is my paraphrase. You're just like your daddy. You're just like your daddy, the devil. And, you know, we have this picture of Jesus. Like he's, oh, just so tender, little shepherd, you know, with the little sheep around. And then he drops a bomb like this on the religious, religious leaders. But I'm saying this to you to remind you that the Pharisees were the ones who supposedly knew the word of God. They had been trained in the word of God. They were meticulous in their relationship with God. And yet they had exalted the tradition of man over and even above the word of God to the extent where Jesus said, you are just like your father, the devil. Paul says this to the church at Corinth, warning them. He says, for such are false prophets, excuse me, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And so Paul's warning this church. He's like, hey, listen, you got, you've, you've got to be discerning because there are individuals who, you know, they themselves are going to present themselves as apostles. And it's no big surprise because the adversary, Satan, does the very same thing. But you need to make sure that they're speaking the truth and that their lives line up with the truth as well. Does that make sense tonight? The second thing that we see about this individual is in verse 12. The Bible says, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the second thing that we learn about the false prophet is that he is going to lead people in the worship of the Antichrist. So it's clear that he is going to be a religious leader. In fact, I would say that he will be the head of the world's religious system. It is a system of worship. It probably will start out very ecumenical. 
Um, it'll be like the tree that Daniel saw in his dream or in his vision, this big tree where all of the birds come and nest. I think that this one world religious system will be similar. It'll be this system, it'll be this religious structure where all of the different world religions will have their place. And then over the course of time, by the time you get to the middle of the Great Tribulation, all of that changes dramatically as the Antichrist in the rebuilt temple is going to declare himself to be God and demand all of those individuals uh, worship him. He is going to put himself in God's place, which by the way, we talked about this last week. Some people say, well, what really is Satan's motivation? You know, I mean, what, what, is, what is the end game for the adversary? And the end game for the adversary is always the same. He wants to be worshiped instead of God. Right, these were the seven I will statements that we see in Isaiah chapter 14. This was his intent, his desire to be in the very place of God, to ascend to the mount of God, to sit on the very throne of God, so that all the worship that was going to the true God would in fact come to him. And so for a moment, it would seem the whole world, uh, apart from those who are believers in Jesus Christ, will be taking part in the worship of the devil. So he leads people in the worship of the beast. The third thing that we see in verse 13 is this, he performs signs and wonders. He performs supernatural signs and wonders. The Bible says, verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That should sound familiar to you. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, we talked in some detail last week about how we have to be uh, extra discerning because God is not the only one who works miracles. The adversary, it has been uh, allowed by God, you know, some of these things are just really difficult to explain, but God in his sovereignty has allowed the adversary to have some authority to perform supernatural signs and wonders. And last week we, we talked about being careful. Just because something miraculous happens doesn't mean that God is the author of the miracle. Remember, we talked about some of the things that we ought to be looking for uh, to really discern whether or not a miracle is from God. Um, it should point towards God, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit is never going to be empowering a miracle that is going to give glory to the instrument that's used. He is never going to be allowing a supernatural miracle um, for, for his own sake, because when the Spirit of God works a miracle, it is always to point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there will be supernatural signs and wonders. By the way, just in case you were wondering, there is a difference between signs uh, and wonders. I'm not saying that they are totally separate. They definitely are overlapping circles, but a sign is a supernatural work that points to something. So when we study the gospel according to John in August, when we start that study, John writes uh, a gospel account that's not synoptic. In other words, it's not a synopsis of the life of Christ, and it doesn't really necessarily follow a chronological order. John arranges his gospel account around things that Jesus said that only God could say and things that Jesus did that only God could do. And depending on how you count, there's either seven sayings or eight sayings and seven signs or eight signs. But they're always spoken of as signs, not as wonders and not as miracles. It doesn't mean that they weren't wonderful. It doesn't mean that they weren't miraculous, but they were intended to lead people to a conclusion. And the conclusion, John states, is that those who were reading would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing, they would have life in his name. That's how, that's how it's said. So this false prophet is going to have the capacity to do miraculous things that are signs. They're gonna be supernatural works that point ultimately to the Antichrist. It's gonna be leading people in a deceptive way to the, to the worship of the one who is against Jesus or the one who stands in the stead of Jesus. And then in addition to that, he is gonna be able to work wonders 
Uh, and a wonder is a supernatural event that causes awe. It's a supernatural event that causes awe. Um, that's really what the word wonder means. It means that you're brought into this state of awe. It's almost like you're speechless. This is where our word awesome comes from. It is amazing. It's beyond what you could ever imagine or comprehend. And so these things that he does, as he is empowered and probably partly possessed by Satan himself, are going to point towards the Antichrist and they're going to cause wonder and awe in people so that that leads them to deception. Um, you'll notice as well, as some of this is described, that there's an element of counterfeit happening here uh, because one of the signs and wonders that the false prophet is going to be able to do is he's going to be able to cause fire to fall from heaven. Now, you've heard this before, right? Have you seen this before in the book of Revelation? Who else did that? Who else did that? Nice and loud. Elijah, well, yeah, could be Elijah, right? Could two, the, the two witnesses, remember? One of the miracles that's going to happen is that there will be fire that falls from heaven. And so some people would say, well, what we have here with the Antichrist and the false prophet is kind of a counterfeit of the two witnesses. And so, so as God clearly is working through these two witnesses and fire is falling from heaven, the adversary is saying, well, that's not really God because, listen, we can do the same thing, which is essentially what the magicians did when Moses rolled into Egypt. Uh, and not only that, but the false prophet is going to make an image that will be worshipped uh, presumably in the rebuilt temple. Uh, and, you know, it seems that there is some sort of miracle that happens that causes, in some sense, this image of the Antichrist to come to life. And the Antichrist is described as the one that was wounded by the sword and lived. Remember, it appears that he's resurrected from the dead. But this false image is going to be placed probably in the third temple, presumably when the Antichrist is not present. And it's almost, it's going to look almost as if it is coming to life. Uh, now, my view on this is, it's probably not really coming to life because the only one that can give life is God. And the magicians of Pharaoh recognized that when, you know, the, the dust was turned into gnats. This was one of those things that they said, hey, listen, we can't do this because this is the very finger of God. Only God can animate that which does not have life. But there seems to be some deception here that, that causes people to think that this idol is in fact living. Now, this is just a suggestion tonight, and I know you probably, if you check this out online, you'd probably get a hundred different ideas, but I was reading an article today from a scientist from MIT, uh, and this scientist has really thrown the whole AI world into chaos because this particular scientist has said that uh, artificial intelligence already bears some sense of consciousness. I mean, which is a big deal, right? Because artificial intelligence does not have a soul. Uh, there is no co conscience. But this particular scientist is saying, hey, no, we've actually exceeded what we thought was possible. And there is some sense of consciousness already that we're uh, recognizing in AI. Uh, or maybe some people have said it's a hologram, but whatever the case may be, it's possible that technology is, is playing a part of this. Uh, the third thing that we see that the false prophet will be able to do is perform supernatural signs and wonders, definitely something that we want to be discerning of even in our own time. And the final thing today in verses 16 to 18 is this, he demands allegiance, and so the scripture says he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So those are three different things. Who has uh, the mark of the beast or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then John goes on to say, here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, his number is 666. Now all of you, I'm sure, have heard of the mark of the beast, right? 
In fact, probably over the last two years, you have heard more about the mark of the beast than you ever wanted to hear in your whole lifetime. Um, let me just say this. It's not really the topic of our study tonight, but God has his mark and the Antichrist has his mark. You're going to notice that there's a very clear distinction between those who are believers in the tribulation period and those who are not believers. Satan is going to mark his and God is going to mark his I'm reminded tonight of um, those uh, words from that great philosophical sage, J. Vernon McGee, who said, who said, you know, there's really only two categories of people, the saints and the ain'ts, right? I mean, the saints and the ain'ts, when you, when you boil it down for the believer, we're not looking at categorizing people or labeling people based on their um, education or their economic standing or their advancement in the culture or uh, their ethnicity. We don't do that like the world does it because we see beyond the flesh. We see beyond the external. We see to the eternal what really matters and you either belong to God or you do not belong to God. And part of this, look, this doesn't put us in a place where we're critical or unnecessarily judgmental of other people, it should be birthing a burden within our hearts for the lost, right? Because at the end of the day, what do we desire? Well, we desire what God desires, that all should come to repentance and that uh, there should be none who are lost. And so I think it's just uh, sage wisdom from that great Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee. Uh, but tonight, I just want to say a couple of things about the mark of the beast um, I think when COVID-19 started and the vaccine was, you know, being developed and ultimately was released to the public, there were a lot of, there were a lot of people, a lot of even well-known Christians who were saying, hey, listen, don't get the vaccine because it's the mark of the beast. And, and uh, yeah, I know we laugh now, but we were crying then. And I remember saying to people, hey, listen, this, it is not the mark of the beast, Remember, you've got to go back to what the Bible says. How does the Bible describe the mark of the beast? Now, of course, we know that all technological advancements are moving in that direction, and they have been for some time. You know, Christians, since Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth in 1970-something, have been talking about an advancement of technology that would lead to something like the mark of the beast, where there would be something that would be implanted or placed on the right hand or the forehead of an individual that they could just scan. And, you know, it would access their financial records and their health records and, you know, all their personal identity stuff. And, you know, there were people in the 70s listening to Christians say this, and they were like, man, you guys are the craziest, nuttiest, bizarrest people ever. Like, like, how could that ever happen? And then what happened is over the last 50 years, we have watched this technology advance and be de developed before our very eyes. I mean, to the place where you know they're already, they're already inserting chips in animals. Like, you can get that chip inserted in your pet. So they, they have uh, an automatic way of not only identifying the animal, but tracking them uh, with GPS. You know, there are certain applications in the um, military in industrial complex where this technology is being applied. Uh, there are some people who are saying, hey, this is a good way just to make sure that your kids are safe. And so you can, you know, you can have this technology, what a benefit it will be. But we've seen all of these advancements of technology pointing to ultimately this mark of the beast. Now, let me just say that the technological advancements uh, themselves are not the mark of the beast. They are not the mark of the beast. And so some would say, well, you know, that vaccine and, you know, when they inject the vaccine in you, there's this, uh, there's, there's this RFID chip or something. All of that really is just a, a total, it's a bunch of nonsense, but what I can say is that that era of the biological integration of technology is here. It is here. Like if there ever was a moment where these things could happen, now in fact is the moment. And I think, you know, as I have watched the, the world respond to 
you know, the need for a vaccine. And for some of us, it's like, well, that's nonsense. For some of us, no, it's necessary. And our perspective has been, you pray, you consult your doctor, and you make the decision that God leads you in. We're not gonna sit here and dictate whether or not you get a vaccine. Um, nevertheless, what we have seen is that the world can be in a place where they're susceptible to the encouragement, right? I mean, maybe more than anything ever before, we have seen that the global population can be moved in a particular direction. And so I'm just saying to you that over the last two years, the idea of, you know, the vast majority of the global population making a particular decision that seems to be a good idea, right? Hey, we want to avoid identity theft. Well, this can solve that problem. We want to have access to our health records. Well, this can solve that problem. We want to have the availability of financial data. We want to be able to withdraw money or make financial decisions. Well, all of this, you know, seems to make sense. And so you can see in a global sense how people could be led in that direction. And it doesn't just seem like a crazy idea. I think when the Antichrist is present, all of these things are going to seem logical. This thing, whatever it is, is going to be on the right hand or on the forehead. And let me just say, this might be a counterfeit to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember, because the the children of Israel, the men, were required to wear phylacteries, which was they had, the, they had the law of God on their right hand, and they had the law of God strapped to their forehead. And so possibly even in this, there's that counterfeit desire of the adversary. Let me say this about the mark of the beast from what we read here in these verses, just so it's clear. Uh, this is the Antichrist mark and it will be identified with his person. The actual number is 666, not a representation. We'll talk in just a minute about what that might mean. It's a mark that's visible, it would seem from what's written here, a mark that's visible to the naked eye. It seems from the way this is written that it is on you, not in you. It's recognized, not questioned. It's voluntary, not involuntary. Thus, it, it cannot be given through deception. And by that, I simply mean this. When someone takes the mark of the beast, they will be aligning themselves to the Antichrist. They will know that, right? Years ago in Bible college, we had a, a well-known Calvary Chapel pastor encouraging us not to get tattoos because if you got a tattoo, you might accidentally get the mark of the beast. And so let me just say to you, you, you will not be able to accidentally get the mark of the beast. I mean, when you take the mark, you're saying, I am identifying myself, right? I'm submitting myself to, I am in alignment with, that, that individual is over me and I, am, and I am under him. I'm worshiping him. That will be the declaration. And if you're living in John's time, this wasn't foreign because everyone who lived in Roman-occupied territory had to worship Caesar. They had to go into uh, temples and they had to offer a, a pinch of incense and they had to say the word, Caesar is Lord. And so when you take the, when, not when you, but when someone takes the mark of the beast, what they're going to be saying is the Antichrist is Lord, which is why Christians will not be able to take the mark of the beast. They will not take it, which is why Christians during the first century era of the church were also in that situation, and many of them lost their lives for the sake of the gospel because they rejected offering incense to Caesar. This will be, from my perspective, it'll be used after the rapture, not before. Um, it is needed to buy and sell. It is universally received by non-Christians, but universally rejected by Christians. Uh, in it, people will show their worship, like I said, and allegiance to the Antichrist. It'll be promoted by the false prophet. So this, this individual who on the outside looks passive and peaceful is a religious leader with everyone's best interests in mind is going to promote this thing. Um, it'll be the destiny of all receiving the mark to be eternally punished in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So in other words, once you get the mark of the beast, there will be no turning back. And then as John wraps this up, 
uh, he says, here is wisdom, let him who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number, talking about the Antichrist, his number is 666. Now, I'm going to just be honest with you guys. I have absolutely no idea what that means, okay? I mean, it is really, really difficult to understand. And the next time that you're in a Christian bookstore or you're on Amazon.com and you see a book that says, um, discovered what the number of the beast means, buy this book. Well, don't buy the book because they have no idea, they have really no idea what this means, I don't think. Um, what I will say is this, the number seven is the number of perfection. The number six is the number of man. So, so the number six represents imperfection. The number seven represents perfection. So possibly what's being conveyed here is, you know, the, the holy trinity really is a seven, seven, seven. Because the Father is perfect, the Son is perfect, and the Holy Spirit is perfect. And this unholy trinity really is a six, 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 because the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet are all imperfect. You know, you can take that for what it is. I do want to encourage you later on to read Revelation chapter 17, verses 7 to 18, because uh, John gets some more insight as to what's happening with the beast uh, and with the false prophet. Uh, but you can check that out later. You know, tonight you might be thinking, man, this is all kind of discern disturbing, Pastor. Like, how can I ensure that I'm in a place where I'm empowered by God to be able to be discerning in these very deceptive days that we're living in? Um, and I, I want to encourage you with this. Of course, be a student of God's word, right? Be a student of God's word. Bring your Bible to church and make sure that what is being spoken to you is actually contained in the book. But it's not just about bringing your Bible to church. It's about learning to know God through his scripture on a daily basis. Sometimes, you know, when we read the Bible, it's like, man, we, there's so much we don't know that we don't even know really where to begin. Don't let that discourage you. And, you know, we talked about how the devil speaks, right? He's a discourager. He's a deceiver. He will try to attempt to keep you away from this book. You know, I think D.L. Moody, when he signed Bibles, he signed Bibles like this. Um, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. And, and that, that's good. It's just a good thing to remember. Um, but in that, please remember that the devil will always be trying to keep you separated from the scriptures. And maybe tonight, part of that piece of separation is like, man, you just, there's just so much. Well, what do you do? Well, what you do is you, you start. You just got to start. You have to start reading. And as you read, trust that the Spirit of God, ask God's Spirit to give you understanding because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Start in a place like the Gospel according to John or the Gospel according to Mark. Mark is a short Gospel account, 16 chapters. Um, it reads like an action movie, and so it'll keep you really engaged, uh, and it'll give you a great synopsis of the life of Christ. So, be in the word of God. The second thing that I want to encourage you with is be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when God's Spirit comes upon you and empowers you, gives you strength. This was what Jesus said in the gospel according to John when he was talking to his disciples. He said, listen, I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you. You need to wait until, in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The scripture says in John chapter 20, verse 22, that he breathed in them the Holy Spirit. So they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit in a New Testament sense, but they had yet to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in that special way that was called the promise of the Father. And so when you get to the book of Acts, what you have assembled there in the upper room are a group of New Testament believers that were part of the New Testament church. They were indwelt with the Spirit of God. This is, this is the way that we read the scriptures with respect to the baptism of the Spirit. And so they were waiting. 
They were tarrying, like Jesus said, in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which was this subsequent uh, experience of the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. Because Jesus himself said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire not many days from now. And so, remember, this is... um, The promise of the Father, the empowering of the Spirit, which enabled the disciples to be the witnesses to Christ, like he said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, The baptism of the Spirit sometimes happens simultaneously with salvation, and sometimes it's subsequent to salvation. So like I said, with the 11 disciples, they'd already been indwelt by the Spirit of God, but the baptism of the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. Um, For those disciples who were in Samaria, when Philip was preaching, they'd responded to the gospel, yet they had not received the empowering of the Holy Spirit until the disciples, John and Peter, came from Jerusalem and laid hands on them. Uh, I, I believe, as I read the salvation story of the apostle Paul, that on the road to Damascus, he responded to the gospel when he recognized that it was Christ whom he had been persecuting, And yet when he went to the house of Ananias, Ananias laid his hands on him and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems to be simultaneous to salvation in the house of Cornelius because you remember as Peter is preaching and they responded, the Holy Spirit fell. And then when Paul is ministering to those disciples in Ephesus, they were disciples of John the Baptist, but they'd only been baptized in John's baptism. They'd not even heard about the Lord Jesus. And so when Paul shared with them the fulfillment of John's ministry, which was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he laid hands on them and the Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The Bible reminds us that this is not a one-time event, but the baptism of the Spirit. Are you guys with me tonight? This is really important. Don't miss this, because some of us are living unempowered lives. Some of us are living unempowered lives. It's not that we're not believers. We are believers. We put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, but there's a subsequent experience of the Spirit of God that's missing in our lives. For some of us, it's just because we don't even know. We don't even know that we can ask. We don't even know that we can be relying upon the Spirit of God to supply us with the baptism or with the filling is another word that's used in the book of Acts. This should be continual. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, don't be drunk with wine in which is destruction, but be filled with the Spirit. And when Paul says that, uh, like you could translate it like this, from the Greek into English, but be being filled. Be being filled. Be filled on a continual basis. And then the fruit of that, Paul goes on to say, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of God. And when you look at The day of Pentecost, that was not the only time that the disciples were filled or baptized in the Spirit. As you read through the book, this is what you discover. It's all subsequent as well. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 verse 8, as Peter is talking to the religious leaders, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them. And then when the disciples were all gathered together after they were persecuted, the Bible said, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Don't you want that for your life? Don't you want that experience of the Holy Spirit in your life? And in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, the Bible says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 52, the Bible says, As the ministry of the Spirit was working through Paul's life, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm saying to you tonight that there is this subsequent experience to salvation of the Holy Spirit that God desires all of us to have. And if you've been feeling weak and unempowered, if you've been feeling uh, strung out, if you've been struggling 
to do the things that God has called you to do in the sense of being a witness and even using your spiritual gifts, most likely the case is you need a fresh baptism of God's Holy Spirit. You say, well, well how does that happen? What do I have to do? Do I have to fast for 40 days or, you know, do I have to go to church a certain number of times? The Bible says all you have to do is ask. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You need to have the hands of the leaders of the church laid on you as you're asking. Acts chapter 8, verse 16, I mentioned this to you. Disciples in Samaria had not been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the scripture says that they came and they laid hands on them. And that's when they received the promise of the Father. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're not going to let you walk out of this place unempowered on your own, right? Yes, because the truth is this, the devil is an adversary that you're no match for on your own. You're no match for him. He will wipe you out. He will wipe you out. You know, some people, the way I hear them talk about the devil, you know, I mean, it's like, dude, you know, shut your mouth. Just stop, because the Bible says even the archangel Michael did not, did not bring a reviling accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, we are in a spiritual battle and we have to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit.